hello everyone. Welcome. Hello everyone. Welcome to the Chris and Arash show. And we have a very special program today, like we always do, but this one is also extra special. Um, and it's on Buddhism. Great. How are you doing, Rosh? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Excellent. Doing well. Yeah, Buddhism. It's a it's a topic that we both uh, enjoy talking about. Um, I feel like I need to preface by saying this is, a, for me anyway, a very, you know, just my own subjective experience, right? Like I'm no... I was going to start. And I was going to start with that too. It's like disclaimer, you know, this is... Uh, we're not uh, necessarily experts on it or scholars, but we are fascinated by it. And um, I think um, both of us are trying to incorporate parts of it or, or most of it in our lives as well, or practicing right. it in a certain way. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's so much out there in terms of the Theriyada and Mahayana, you know, schools and, you know, the Vipassana tradition that has sort of been brought over with this sort of insight meditation that we really fastened on in the West. And I was sort of doing some reading around about, the, you know, the different sects all around the world and all of the sectarian conflict and all of that. And it's like, wow, that's, that's a whole very complex topic, which I don't have, you know, any kind of authority to talk about, but I think we both have a lot to say about, the experiences, the impact it's had for us in terms of that kind of secularized Western version that we tend to gravitate towards, right? I think it's fascinating because it's uh, it's many different fields in one. It's very interdisciplinary. So we do have the psychological aspect, philosophical, and then the religious, spiritual, as well as the personal growth. So it's like mm -hmm. it's pretty much all in one. Yeah, yeah. And I think... Um, I was sort of thinking of this as sort of the, the things I, that I like and the things that I struggle with, you know, mm. so, and, and I think probably there's a lot of overlap, but I, I sense there might also be things that we will sort of disagree with in an interesting way, hopefully. I, I think we can, I don't know, to start with a really simple one, I think you'd agree it's like, it's a, it's a if, if, if it is a religion, it's a religion without a God. Mm -hmm. Right, it's a non-theistic religion. It's mm -hmm. kind of cool. Yeah, that is quite interesting. And so, what uh, makes it so fascinating too? It's accessible to everyone, so every human being. And basically, that if you are a human being, you already you have like a special seat. You have the chance to become enlightened, and you're not if you're not a human being. But then you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. So. This is pretty much for everyone, uh, dogs and cats. Sorry about that, but uh, it does uh, apply to, to to humans mainly, which is kind of interesting too. I, I I would like to know, like maybe do animals kind of can can they get enlightenment? But I, I guess it's kind of difficult for them to grasp some of these philosophical aspects. And let's well, start. That's with, an interesting. Yeah. Sorry, that's an interesting question. One of the sort of teachers, guides, writers that I really fought like is Joseph Goldstein. And he often talks about this where, you know, when we talk about mindfulness and we talk about sort of being completely in the moment, you know, animals have us beat on that for much yes, of the time, but we, but we can't necessarily call that sort of true mindfulness. And he calls it like 
like Labrador retriever consciousness, you know, where they're so happy in the moment and they're, they're chasing a stick and now there's a squirrel, but there's no, there's no self-awareness. There's no kind of greater, they're very much led around by their own mind or mind, whatever. There's no sense of stepping back from the flow of impulses. But this is our perception, and we might be wrong as humans and not give yeah. them enough credit, which we haven't We haven't given them enough credit. And even Descartes thought of them as machines, and yeah. obviously that is that is completely, completely wrong. But our focus can be only on, on the humans and what we, our experiences especially. And so we will start with the four noble truths. Um, let's go over them. That's how it starts. So, uh, so basically, yeah. I think well, this is again a disclaimer. Oh. This is us, but I think the idea is there is suffering in the world, and yeah. that was the perception that Siddhartha Gautama had, and um, he saw suffering. He was privileged, right? He was secluded, and he saw suffering and said, "That can't be right. I have to do something about it. Becoming a king won't solve it. I have to go deeper into it." And so then, uh, what's the second one? Oh, yeah. So the, the suffering comes from um, our ego, our attachment, our small right, eye that we have. And there is the third one. Actually, I was, um, I was reading um, Robert Thurman's book, uh, Wisdom is Bliss. He's uh -huh. a best scholar, and he was on Arash's World podcast as well. Oh, and cool. so he, he treats it very interesting as a uh, if you go to a doctor and the doctor will give the diagnosis, the symptom, the symptom first is suffering. Diagnosis is, well, you have an ego problem, right? And then uh, the um, prognosis would be there is a way of detaching from it or finding out that we're all connected. This is just a small eye and we are actually part of a bigger picture. And then uh, the uh, the therapy would be basically, which leads Forward. to the eightfold uh, path, which right. is different ways of being in the world ethically, in terms of our thinking, our speaking, and so on. Um, so starting off with that, um, what are your thoughts on this? Which is quite pragmatical. It's it's pragmatic. It's analytical as well, and kind of common sense. Well. I get, yeah, I mean, I think that what I find is, you know, over the years, as I learn more, it, it always just rings true. It always just goes, oh, yeah, of course. You know, it's sort of there's a there's a kind of um, it, it just always on, on some level kind of feels right. And and and, you know, kind of continues to be applicable to, you know, I think as I grow older, it, it sort of becomes an excellent guide to growing older older in a graceful way you know like in a kind of being able to let things go being able to accept things being able to have a better understanding of one's place in the world in relation to other people being able to accept the impermanence of of everything um and then you know i guess when when you sort of look at impermanence and you look at everything always falling away and that the, the self is, you know, this, the idea of part of this sort of the self is a fiction, you know, a kind of illusion that kind of just pops up in, a, in each situation as something new all the time. You sort of go, well, what's left? You know, like what is, what value is there 
it is certainly not going to be like clinging to, you know, wealth or, or desire or whatever. And then you sort of logically go, oh, well, there's compassion, you know, and, and that, you know, with, and that sort of connects you to other people and, uh, and actually makes for a very kind of meaningful and purposeful life if you can, you know, view others and be, and act out of that compassion, you know, then suddenly all those other things just become a little easier where, where the focus is off the self and more on, on others. That all makes sense to me. And that, that was the part I've struggled with and probably still do is that idea of the ego and the small I and the idea of attachment and detachment and suffering and pleasure and so on. Um, but it's for me, I think it's it's the, the small ego is when we limit ourselves, when we limit of uh, limit our view of ourselves and our, our, our position. Whereas the larger sense is when we see ourselves as, as part of the whole. So, and we, we, I think this was something that came up uh, earlier in, in one of our talks, I believe, was um, when you help others, it makes you feel happy, right? So yes. that kind of sense. And when you just help yourself or do something for yourself, it's kind of a limited happiness. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if I see it in that sense, um, I, I, quite like it instead of that kind of like very neutral kind of robotic of no feelings and i i I can't buy into that that's the issue i have with Mm. with buddhism if that is the goal because i think the the goal is to really increase our happiness and Mm. satisfaction but it's again not uh, turning into gluttony or drinking or you know, having sex with whoever, but it's more kind of a channeled way of happiness. And um, one thing that's very interesting, Viktor Frankl talks about that happiness is not something that we can pursue. It's something that must follow, must ensue. Mm-hmm. And I think that is perhaps a problem when we look for the happiness always outside the pursuit of happiness, fame, money, uh, uh, this and that, and lots of partners and so on. So I think that could be the issue here of realizing that our perception of things is wrong. Not necessarily the ego, it's just our perception of things is wrong. Yeah, and, and I think the per- because in that perception is based on a false sense of permanence, you know, that somehow we are going to get this certain pleasure and it's going to have some lasting value or or even something that we potentially look forward to as as something that's going to be this you know wonderful reward for something and you know it it just sort of falls flat it just doesn't doesn't satisfy when it's a purely kind of selfish goal and and so um i think part of that is that those illusions come out of you know that idea of the conditioned self and that conditioned self is the the ego and the ego is sort of very invested in maintaining those you know i mean it's it's not purposeful in that way it just happens that it's it's conditioned so then that conditioning remains so it's a sort of like oh i must protect my whatever it is my my sense of of um myself as a elevated person at work you know, my, my self, somehow I have this, this, you know, not me personally, hopefully, but, but someone, you know, at work who's really like, oh, you, you know, I really need respect. I really need people to recognize that I'm, I'm very good at my job and I need to hear that every day. And then it's like, 
well, you're not always going to be the expert. And, and as time goes by, you know, new people come with greater expertise and you'll have to let that go. And that's fine. Like nobody cares. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't undermine your value as a, as a human being, but that, that ego is going to say, no, do, do whatever you can to hold on to this illusory sense of, of, you know, being better than others on, on whatever basis. And then, and then I think the result becomes you become extremely defensive, you become extremely reactive. Um, everything is viewed in, in terms of conflict and, and um, competition. Um, and then if you just let all of that go and just say, hey, that, none of that matters. Um, and then you just sort of are freed from it. I mean, that's it. Nothing, uh, nothing really matters in that sense. I mean, we still, um, the things that we think matter really don't again, most things. And um, I, I find that also interesting when we talk about the ego, because from a psychoanalytic point of view, the ego is, 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 it has a tough job because they have to please the superego, which is, again, all these right. ideas of morality that we have, and the unconscious, which wants satisfaction and pleasure. And I, I mean, I have to give the, the ego credit of trying to balance those forces. But for in terms of uh, Buddhism, what really fascinated me about it and made me think uh, was actually, I remember reading about a bicycle example. And so when we say, when does the bicycle stop being a bicycle? So this is a bit odd, but it will oh, make I know. I can, I can just, yeah. And so again, what parts, if we take out a wheel, is it still a bicycle? And if you take both of them, and if you take the handlebar and so on, so at what point will, will it stop being a bicycle? And when, when you think of the ego in that sense, then you realize that the part that we're identifying with might just be the bell and that's <laughs> it. And we're not looking at the whole bike. Right. And, and also though, you know, where is the self that, you know, it's like take, take away everything bit by mm -hmm. bit and you, you end up going, wait, there is no real self here. You know, there's, it's, there's that emptiness that, that Buddhism points to and, and where there's really, again, just that kind of emergent, sense of self that sort of flickers in this situation and then flickers in a slightly altered way in a new situation, but always feels consistent over time, just as a kind of illusion, just so that we don't go insane. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but really, it's just based on whatever the new the new situation is. But, but it's also seems... kind of, it's quickly thrown together to handle it. <laughs> a new bicycle is built. Two, two worlds, two, and two realities. I mean, if like we can look at this is my perspective, there's also the bigger perspective, but then I'd go back to my perspective. And um, so we, we kind of need to alternate and switch between them. That's how I understand the example of mountains are mountains, then they're not mountains anymore. So you basically zoom out and then you zoom in again and they become mountains. But the difference is once you've gone through that second phase that where everything is distorted, where you think you, you've gone crazy, you actually reach another perspective when you come back. So we can, I think a good allegory would be just not the best example, but doing drugs where your perception changes, but then you come back to in a different way, but you come back to yourself again. So mm -hmm. I think that's it. And you can't really exist in that other world the bigger picture that I'm talking about, I think, unless you're, you're full enlightened. But I think even then you would switch back to become like the Buddha did, becoming a human again, except that you feel that 
yes, there is so much more to life. You've had that glimpse and you can always go to that place. Hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's that was an interesting point that I wanted to bring up is like um, one of the things I struggle with is, you know, there's always this prize that's kind of dangled, you know, which is liberation, enlightenment, whatever, which as as non-monastic lay people, you know, we're not really going to get, we don't, it's not necessarily, it's not something that's really available to us. So it's kind of always like, well, this is great. And it, and it sort of provides some insight and provides a certain level of ease and some wisdom for us. But there's also that sort of frustration factor. It's like, but I, but you're not really ever going to get the big prize, right? Because <laughs> we're, we're always going to be one, you know, more than one foot in the, in the, in the ordinary stream of our daily lives. And then occasionally kind of stepping back and then trying to be a bit more mindful in our day-to-day life so that we're not quite as completely over overwhelmed with the the sort of all of the desires and all the usual suffering of the world. But there is going to be like what you're talking about, sort of moving back and forth between those two perspectives, those two realms. And um, and I think that's a hard one to navigate for anyone who's sort of interested in Buddhism. It's always going to be like, how how much of the, how much of the, how much should I be participating in the world, and how much should I be kind of stepping back? And I remember reading on Reddit about I was interested, you know, when people go off to become monks, like how often, how long does that last? Like what happens when you're like, mm-hmm. all right, I'm done, I'm going to become a monk. Like here in the West, when it's not something they necessarily do in their culture, <clears throat> and there is a and I read a bunch of accounts where it's sort of like I think. People last about a year, I think, maybe a little bit less. And then they're like, screw this, I'm going back to my family. But it's an interesting year, obviously. But, you know, there comes a point where you're like, okay, um, I, I'm i not a monk. I, I, I do still have things, some karma here in the ordinary world. And, and the idea of monk, like I, when I was a teen, that was something I was like, yeah, I want to do it. But then I said, well... Why not, if I can be a monk or if I can reach uh, and Satori or enlightenment and epiphany, then why not here? Why do I have to go to a secluded place? And so if you can have it there, you should be able to have it here as well. And so the other thing I'm also finding fascinating is ex-monks, because what does that mean? Do you still have that? Is that what they're talking about? Then, yes, I would love that to just go there get my enlightenment and come back and say, OK, here, here I am living my daily life. And um, I think it's also the when you, we pursue a thing, going back to that pursuit, and when you pursue enlightenment, you're kind of uh, deluding yourself. That's part of the delusion. And so it's like looking for your keys outside, but the keys are inside already, somewhere in there. So mm-hmm. I think we um, I think a lot of people also approach Buddhism for like what it can give to them. And uh, and it becomes frustrating because that's what you're doing in that sense. If if that's the case, then you're just feeding your ego instead of. And that's what could happen with meditation too. If if it's used for that purposes, you're just basically channeling that ego part uh, of of yourself. And that that has happened to like to to many people, even like um, scholars and monks themselves. And that's why you have, I think, then uh, in the Zen tradition, I like the koan, where you just like, oh, I got it. And then the master looks at you and says, no, you didn't. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's kind of like a realization and not 
not to worry too much about it either. You know, mm -hmm. I think when you're too concerned about something, then it's just preoccupied and you won't be able to see the mountain for the, uh, the, um, the tree from the forest. So is it the forest from the trees? One yeah. of those. Yeah. <clears throat> I think, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I think, you know, I think of, you know, like becoming an athlete, right? Like if you want to go to the Olympics or something, you're probably going to have to at some point quit your job and start training full time because you're going to need to reach a certain level of fitness that you're just not going to be able to do evenings and weekends while also holding down a nine to five job. <clears throat> but you could still do a couple of marathons here and there, and you could still do a bit of exercise. Just, I just don't think you're, it's. And so similarly, like, I don't think like to me, meditation is, is going to the gym, you know, like that's mm -hmm. the, I mean, I mean, figuratively speaking, not actually, but it's sort of like that's the where you go to do the heavy lifting, where you're going to go sit and do your like whatever hours at a time on in a retreat or whatever it is. And truly um, sort of let all that conditioning fall away, you know, and just sit through it. It's not fun, you know, and as from what I hear, not that I've experienced it at all, but, you know, just sort of that having to just watch the layers just fall away and just getting down to that essential self and then coming back from that experience, you know, really with a sense of detachment that you wouldn't have had, had you been practicing sort of here and there and still very much in the swim of your ordinary life. And I just, I, I just, I don't think it's possible. Like I just, you know, cause I've never been on like a 10 day retreat or a, even a one day retreat, but, but you know, when people talk about that experience, you know, it's sort of the first three days are hell. And then you break through to this point where you stop craving all of those little things that you're missing. Like, Oh my God, three days. I haven't checked my phone. Oh my God. You know, I want a coffee. Oh my God. I, you know, all those things. And then you're just like, Oh my God, it's it, now it's me without all of those impulses, without all that conditioning. And I'm just, being and that must be a really awesome experience but i think we don't we don't get there because I'll, I'll do like a like a saturday where i you know won't look at my phone and i'll do a lot of meditation and maybe be out in nature and just be on my own and i mean that's not like a real retreat but i i can feel how i'm sort of my mind is in a better place um so i don't know i i don't know i don't think for me, anyway, it doesn't seem possible to to attain any kind of like enlightenment, enlightenment without that retreat experience. Maybe, sorry, maybe or maybe not. I, I'm yeah. not sure. I would actually disagree with that because that seems like there's only this specific way of, of getting to a place. And um, when I talk to 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 people who who do practice Buddhism. I feel like they're actually quite open. They say, well, this is this is one way and there are other ways and those ways will probably take you the same place as well. Mm. As long as it's like, I think with psychoanalysis, you do the, the, the layers that come off and it's, it's terrifying. It's, it's, it's painful, but it's like, it's something that's, uh, that's really good for you. And because it's also liberating at the same time. Yeah. And I think that um, what I like about Buddhism specifically, and um, that's, um, I think I prefer it over 
uh, religions or uh, Christianity is my, my background knowledge here, is that it, it talks about effort because this is not easy to get to. You have to put in the effort, you have to put in the time and you have to continue doing it. Whereas I think at certain brands or uh, forms of Christianity, it seems way too simple. It's like, I have faith and that's it, right? So no, I, I, I think it's it's really like something that you have to work on. It's You have to have a certain amount of discipline. Mm-hmm. You have to keep doing it, like training. I like that, the example of the athlete. And then you, however, get to that, that high. And once you do it wholeheartedly, and um, not sure you necessarily need specific conditions to do that, but as long as you do have the, the will to do so, that is the, the most important part, I think. Yeah, and, and I think it's sort of, you know, with Christianity, it obviously comes with so much, you know, judgment and sin and all of that, whereas sort of funny because in some ways you might end up having a similar lifestyle, you know, like you you probably aren't going to overindulge, you're not going to like, drink your face off. You're not going to party a lot. You know, you're going to live a pretty quiet, pretty quote unquote virtuous life of service and all of that. But when you do it as a Buddhist, you do it sort of joyfully because you're like, this just makes sense. This just makes me happy as opposed to the Christian who's like, Oh, I, so I, I mustn't sin. Of course, as a, as a fallen, you know, fallen human, my, my default is to sin However, I must fight that and become and, and force a, myself to do this unpleasant, virtuous life. You know, we want to deal with suffering. We don't want to create more suffering and make it more painful for ourselves. Yeah. So that's why when uh, when people are forced to like not to drink or to abstain from alcohol or coffee and so on, uh, I, I see that as like you know you're torturing yourself in many ways. Unless again, like, like you say, the, uh, the Buddhist would say, you know what, this does not please me. Or I will have it in moderation, and that's something I like about Buddhism too. Like everything in moderation, yeah. and so 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 finding that 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 sweet spot, that right balance there. Yeah, and exactly, and I mean that. And the Buddha went through that, right? Like he he tried all the extreme stuff, you know, the the starving yourself and all of that. And he said, no, this is the this is the middle way. This is the way to go. And that that also that again, it's like, well, that just makes sense. Like that's just like that's just good. Good, good thinking on his part. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, there's, they, in Buddhist circles, they do talk about renunciation, but again, they talk about it as a practical, you know, you, re, you renounce the smaller pleasures for a much greater one, you know, as opposed to simply suffering. And then, you know, acknowledging that a lot, you know, much of life is suffering is just kind of true. But, but I think I was trying to, you know, anticipate or or sort of imagine what some of the criticisms are. And I was reading around and, you know, there is that thought that it's um, in a way non-life affirming. Like it's in a way it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, and I, I don't agree with this necessarily, but I understand where it comes from. The idea that's that- That's the part I would attack, the non-life affirming part. You know, that's the, yeah. the, the part that I would be uncomfortable with. Right. Uh, when it comes to Buddhism, or that, that view of Buddhism. Again, I, I, I think there are different views and some of them are distorted as well. I think yeah. that essentially it's it's very life affirming. It's all about oh, joy yeah. and pleasure. And you look at, uh, uh, I guess, the, the, the Dalai Lama as somebody who's, who's always laughing and is always happy. So if you are suffering, then you won't be happy. So it just like, you know, it just, you're happy just 
being in the world and enjoying life. But for me, uh, detachment is that you don't let it control you, that you have a freedom of dealing with these stressors, dealing with the pain in a way that doesn't engulf you. That is to me detachment. It's not just like living in a monastery and not seeing anybody and not having any technology. In fact, I've seen uh, uh, quite a few uh, monks, Buddhist monks, and um, I was staying in, uh, at, uh, at UBC, and there were a few who would come in and do talks. And it was just amazing. They're in the slippers and ropes, but on, on the cell phones. And that's yeah, just perfect. like, no, they're not renouncing technology. They are using it course, yeah. in a mindful way. And I think that is really the message that we, we have to or use these pleasures in a mindful way. I think that's what I would take away from it. Yeah, I, I, I have for sure. I, you know, but I've also heard accounts of, you know, people saying that you know, they're, they're, they have a family, they have children, and they're, they're kind of deep in their practice, and they sort of go a bit numb. You know, they're kind of like, they're playing catch with their kid in the backyard, but they're also like reminding themselves of impermanence. And it's like, all of this will pass and there's sort of a distance that, that sort of starts to arise there for them. I mean, I'm not saying that that's, a, that's not necessarily uh, a baked into Buddhism itself, but it's, it's a kind of side effect for some people that, that meditation, yeah. whatever brings about, it's a, you get some detachment, which is healthy, but then sometimes people get this, you know, just complete disconnection really from, from daily experience because everything is impermanent. And, and so it's almost like you're just stopped living in a way because you're just no longer, you're so mindful of, of the fact that things are going to, to change and, and all of that. And, and you're, you know, that you're just no longer participating in life. You become disengaged. Yeah, and, and, and that part of it is I, I, I don't agree with both sides, both the impermanence as well as the way it's being being done. And if you look at the Buddha himself, Siddhartha Gautama, he left the uh, on his quest when he had a son. Like yeah, he, yeah. And so to me, that that's horrendous. I mean, yeah. I know he, he is a great person and I know we have to like, in a way, worship him for what he's done and what's brought to humanity. But at the same time, I think that's just, God awful. He's not a, yeah, I mean, he, he had, he's a dad, right? And so he, he's has his responsibility to his. To and his it's like I don't want this attachment. And it's like no, that's that's not attachment. That's uh, that's joy. That's pleasure. That's like. But I think that might have been him in his anger, ignorance, because then afterwards he would not have done it if he had been the Buddha, I guess. But I think that's we we can only speculate on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I mean, you know, there is that element of like. You know, I, there are all sorts of people that I, you know, teachers, writers, whatever, who I really admire and they are, but they, and some of them do live a monk-like existence and it's sort of like, okay, like I, they've attained something, um, but at a cost, obviously, right? Like they're not, they're not living a f necessarily a full human life. Uh, like, and, and they, I mean, they had a very, like the Buddha, they had a very strong drive towards enlightenment right they're you know, like i'm gonna do this and i'm not gonna and i'm done with sort of earthly earthly pleasures i see that they're, they're all empty um and so i don't know again it's it's one it's, it's something that i sometimes struggle with because i do find myself sometimes really getting into my practice and enjoying my practice 
but there comes a point where I'm like, what am I doing? Like, am I a monk now? Like, like, and, and I always think of it as that, that uh, tension between being and doing, you know, where it's like, it's, it's great when you have that experience where you're just experiencing being and you, you're not completely lost in, in doing. And that's, you know, meditation, all that brings that. But then I'll just sort of like a little sort of alarm bell will go off in my mind. I'm like, yeah, great. But, you know, like, remember to still live your life. You know, <laughs> like, this isn't supposed to be like unplugging and you're like, now we're done. It's like, you go do that and then you come back refreshed. You come back more, more available to the people around you, more present. You know, like, that's the real payoff to me, right? Like, I think. As that's opposed to the sort of the, the the part where you get to kind of escape from life, I, I think that's that's mindfulness and how it's it's being used. I completely agree with it. It's um, of seeing like of being present, and you said it of being present, of knowing what matters and what doesn't, and so that that pleasure that you supposedly get from having more money in your bank account, which is. No, pleasant, of course, but yeah. it is not as fulfilling as as doing something with it, of, of going out with with friends and, and eating in a restaurant or those kind of things. So it's like the time you spend on technology is great, but if you go and see a sunset, that pleasure is is so much more because it involves other things, and to to know that difference and not being driven by that, I yeah. think that's what mindfulness brings. But the idea of saying, like, have none of that and just, you know, detach from it all, I think that's actually, uh, that's extremely dangerous and uh, uh, harmful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's that phrase, like, happiness is a state of mind, you know, mm -hmm. that's sort of, and and that, you know, meditation is a, a way of, of nurturing and developing that state of mind where it's really quite independent of external events, right? And we all have this resilience to some degree, you know, and whatever they, what is the formula, you know, for happiness is sort of, there's a genetic portion and then, you know, there's a, you know, sort of whatever your default happiness is. And then it's like 10% is external events, you know, sort of, and as long as you're not like, you know, in, in sort of phase four cancer or whatever, or on fire, you know, if you're, if you basically, your, your physical needs are met, you're going to probably be about this happy regardless. And then there'll be a 10%, you know, external thing that will change a little bit. And so it's sort of like, if you, if through meditation, you can increase your ability to be completely independent of that is a great promise, you know, like, I'm like, that sounds great. But in the same time, I'm like, yeah, but we're still we're still social animals. Like we still require connection. And I guess on one side, if you're doing you know loving kindness meditation, it sort of connects you with the broader human race or whatever. So I guess you have that. But I just sometimes I I I don't know if I know the answer to this, but I just sort of struggle sometimes with that idea of this wonderful state where your happiness is independent of external events versus the fact that we really do need to be connected to other people for our sanity. For right. our, but they're for not our mutually happiness. exclusive. You can have both. And so, so the thing is like when, when a person says, I'm going to retire from the world. And I think that's a small ego speaking. 
I think that's like, you know, I'm going to uh, reach enlightenment. Whereas like you are interrelated and the, if, if you're the Buddha, so is the other person. And so is everyone around you. So it's that 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 saying to you that I always struggled with, and I think I'm understanding it better now, is if you see the Buddha, kill them, because there is no difference. You are no different from the other. We're all interrelated. So so that that focus on just me and I'm gonna detach, and there's my my son playing, but that is not me, and everything is impermanent. I think that is uh, that is seriously flawed. And to me, it would be the other direction. We are the play. We are playing together and we unite in that moment and we create something that's bigger than us. And I see the same in, in strong relationships, friendships and having a family and doing activities that you love. It just disappears. So I just going back to the condition self, I really like that because if I, I put myself in my university years, I really enjoyed studying, but not as much as I do now. And now mm. I'm purposely looking for more courses to take because I love them. And I don't have to in no way. I, it's just my, my pleasure that I get from it. And that was the conditioned self. And I, I feel the same way. Actually, a few days ago, I went, I went shopping with my wife and something I don't enjoy. But last time I said, this is actually not as bad. It's not, you know, and just kind of opening yourself to it. It's like not sticking to this is what I don't like. And this is how I am, and this is who I am. But saying like, oh, seeing it from a different perspective, this is interesting. This is fun. I'm gonna try this out. And that curiosity, I think, is is hugely important. And I think Buddhism does really encourage that. Yeah, and, and that's that's a good one. That's a good um, kind of uh, good concept to kind of introduce. Because the other one that I think is interesting, but also sometimes struggle with, is that you know the idea that pr preferences and aversions ultimately are something you, that we just should give up on you know again on the road to enlightenment it's like just stop having preferences and i'm like eh, no but i also heard a version of this which is it's fine to have preferences and aversions and not be too concerned about them it's like i would prefer like like what you're talking about like i would prefer not to be shopping but <laughs> As as something that I'm a little bit averse to, it's, I I don't need to bring any additional drama to it. It's fine. I can accept exactly. it. And I can even enjoy it in its own way. And, and being and open maybe, to that change too. It's not that you're stuck with it. You might end up liking it. Right. And might they say? And I, I I always tell myself, oh yeah, I'm not good at sports or I'm not good at drawing and so on. But maybe I am. And maybe if I explore it, that will become one of my likes if I give it a chance or not. And either way, it's fine though. But if I limit myself, then I'm missing out on stuff. And I think that is the, that the curiosity needs to be there. Everything can be joyful. Everything can be fun, even if it seems tedious to the conditioned self in some cases. Yeah. And, and then that also, it, it sort of reminds me of the sort of somewhat related concept of this sort of, what is the second dart or the second arrow, which is sort of, you know, the, the what is the, did I say? pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional, you know, where it's sort of like you, you, something may come up and, and maybe you sort of don't particularly want to go shopping, but then you, some of us will heap like additional stories on it. Oh, I always have to go shopping on Saturdays. It's my one day that I get to relax. And it's like, and we just make things worse and worse. And that part we didn't need to do, you know, like that we could have just been like, yeah, 
not 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 my favorite thing. Anyway, I'll leave it at that, as opposed to you know piling on all the additional suffering. Yeah, that Absolutely. was a helpful concept for me. I, I, yeah, definitely. I mean, we do have our own unique self, and that's we can get to impermanence here and the the, the the notion of the ego. And I think the self again, I like the idea of the the small self, which is the the one we usually identify with, which is yeah, Rash and Chris and so on, with with all the things that we think we are. And then there is the bigger self, which uh, is much more than that, which in it's, and that's just the tiny dot in this, this huge circle. And that's what to, to me, um, Buddhism is. And once you connect with that, you realize that reality is not, a, is not suffering, is not just drab. And so there is pain and suffering in the world, but you realize that it's also very magical in its own. And I think that the notion of magic is, I, I do think it exists in, Buddhism, but I don't see it stressed enough because there seems to be too much concern about reality. But then the reality we're talking about is not the reality we think of when we think of reality. So it's it's much more than that. And that's why I, I like certain aspects of certain religions where there is that element of magic, of the supernatural, of, 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 of powers beyond uh, uh, um, kind of uh, powers that we can imagine and imagination and those things I think are, are hugely important. When you focus only on a small part, the philosophical part of Buddhism, that is to me very limited. Well, I mean, and there is, that's another part that I certainly, I mean, I guess in the West, it's easy to kind of just follow a very secular form of Buddhism, but for everyone, for the rest of the world, you know, reincarnation, for example, and, and karma as a kind of almost physical law is an accepted thing right and i i don't i don't you know i don't believe in reincarnation i don't think that there's any i, I don't believe in karma beyond except in the most abstract sense sure you know but we also see a lot of times when you know bad people get to you know go unpunished and so on or whatever it is but but so you know that's one that i know people will often raise as like yeah, Buddhism is interesting, whatever, but it, in a way it is a religion insofar as it does have these sort of supernatural trappings and reincarnation being the big one. But I don't know. Do you believe in reincarnation? Uh, so, um, yeah, I'll just get to that in a moment. But I just thought of the Ten Commandments and then the, the Eightfold Path. And this is like, here, this is the guide. This is how you should live. This is how you should do things. And it's it's pretty much the same thing. There's a lot of overlap between the two. And I think where Buddhism, in my view, gets it wrong is I do believe in a personal soul. And I, I do believe that there is an aspect of us that does continue. It's not just, you know, the limited self, but there is one that has consciousness that has awareness that the experiences we've had, the energy, that were, so to speak, will exist and carry on. I do think that. So the idea that we don't have an ego, I no, I, I think there is a personal personal soul and from again experiences that had but whether that can be combined to kind of like uh, soul the the disney uh, animation where you kind of like recycled and joined and put into another body i don't know I, I i can't say but i do know that something does exist and i do believe in a certain sense i can see it that that part of the self is continuing throughout different existences Right. So I, I could 
I could see that, but um, I'm not too sure. It's not something. Yeah, that... it's, it's. I mean, it's a it's a really tricky one, and I mean, I think there's there is that version of it where in you know in much, maybe in many places in the world where it's simply you like some sense of you know something that would you can identify as specific to how you feel about yourself in this life can be take on a different form in a, in a new life but then i've also heard a far more abstract version which was essentially i mean because to me what's in buddhism there isn't a self right like there's there's this idea of no self there's this you know so what what is being reincarnated and what i've heard is being re reincarnated is all of the as as one person put it it's like all of your neuroses gets gets reincarnated and basically and and not necessarily you don't even have to think of it as you or your neurosis but a a, a pattern of neurotic energy <laughs> that that sort of always reacts in a certain way to certain situations that continues in the world in a sense mm -hmm. you know sort of like so maybe anger or jealousy or whatever as it sort of you know that energy continues in the world and you have contributed to it in some small way with the little pattern of your emergent self in in your little corner of the world but and and, and i think in that sense christianity is is more effective because when it, it, it takes away that that personal thing you know it's like okay the, your life is just limited to this but then basically like atheism you could basically do whatever yeah why why should i follow this you know why should i follow this path and with uh it comes with a stick in, in christianity if not okay you will be beaten and you'll burn so and i think that 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 notion i think is is um i think it's a bit misguided and again that's my own view of it and i think that but buddhism is kind of also iffy in terms of when it comes to the universe and it seems like this like powerful thing at the same time it's like yeah, but it's part of us and so on. And um, I I think even like today, it, was, it seems very human centric to say like, okay, this is all and we reach enlightenment and that's all there is to it. Why could we not allow for higher beings? I'm not talking about necessarily a personal God, but just, just higher beings. And I, in Tibetan Buddhism, there seems to be that idea of, of gods and goddesses and so on. I find that fascinating. And, and again, it can be more than one. We don't uh, uh, kind of the Hinduistic way of seeing things. But I think the idea of that's all and we can, yes, we can reach enlightenment, but there is no guidance beyond ourselves. I don't I don't agree with that. And that's mm -hmm. my main issue here with, with, with Buddhism. Yeah, I guess, I mean, for me, like when we read like in psychology and where they sort of, again to have that you know con these, these concepts of of a self that isn't really there you know the sort of a it's a smoke and mirrors to make us feel like we're a consistent collection of beliefs and values and eccentricities but you know we change so much over time that it's really kind of to me this sort of fits with that model from from buddhism and then it's sort of like the bicycle that you talked about mm -hmm. the wheels come off you know, and the and then finally the frame disintegrates, and it's like, well, what part of that was bicycle? None. It was all just a, just a 
a thing that came together briefly like a cloud in the sky and then it just kind of dissolves yes it's it's fluid though identity is fluid and so when we look at it i mean our body changes our physical aspect changes our mind changes and i think change is an important part and buddhism talks about that and i think that is to me that would be impermanence things don't stay the same no. and that is, I think, important, whereas we have a very static view in, in, in certain belief systems and where you think, OK, this is who I am. And you identify with the, 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 the flesh, your face and so on. But then Buddhism says also, well, what happens? I mean, if, if you think of it, where when you're a child and you're now, there is a huge difference between the two physically, spiritually, mentally. But there is also something that connects them. And that is to me the identity of the person, that thing that connects who you are from when you were a child to now, and maybe from when you, before you were born. Mm. And that is to me that, 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 that line that exists. But the problem is we identify with things, with our physical aspects, with our looks, and we come obsessed with our looks. And when we see how people lash out, when you say something, it's like, oh, you're fat or you're this or you're ugly. And we take it in a very personal way because we identify with that. But that is not real. Mm. That's just part of it. That's the part of the bike. And I think I see the, um, the self as so much more. Or another way is your perception of this is who I am right? You might be wrong. You might be right. Most likely you're wrong because we, we have very limited negative view of ourselves and saying we're judging ourselves. But then there's a view of others, how others see you. And often we see they don't match. You say, oh, mm -hmm. I thought I was incompetent, but everyone around me tell me tells me I'm competent. Are they telling the truth? Is it like imposter syndrome and so on? But in the, in the end, you are, right? So it's that kind of like different perspectives, and once you get rid of that conditioned self, I think that is when you open up and you say, yeah, it's all like part of a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, again, it's like our our defensiveness, our ego leads us to being all kinds of illusions because we, we need we need to we cling to that. We cling to kind of wishfulness. And, you know, I like this concept of I think it's Pema Chodron who talks about this, this groundlessness. So it's sort of like, it's sort of, I've heard also described as, you know, as you become more aware, you have this sense of kind of falling, like as if you've fallen out of an airplane without a parachute, because nothing is sort of firm, everything is impermanent. But then you sort of realize it's like, yes, you're falling out of the, uh, out of an airplane through the sky, but there's no ground. Like you're just going to fall infinitely and eventually you'll die and you just let that go. So there's really no nothing necessarily to hang on to, nothing to be afraid of. And Pema Children is considerably getting quite old now. And she sort of talks about sort of letting, you know, phases of our life go and then sort of imagining death as just a sort of one last little kind of letting go, like a, almost like a little, little bit of turbulence. And then you just, and it's all, and, and there's sort of, there is that sense of, um, you know, that sense of emptiness, that sense of the void, not in a cold and scary way, but just as a kind of, that's maybe in a sense, the greater awareness, you know, like that, the, the giant awareness that we're all kind of part of and briefly have this illusory sense of us as a separate being, as a blip within that awareness. 
And the, the the fear is really, I think, death is just we are afraid of that switch into another state, and we're thinking that we're static. And it's like I like the idea of like it's it's a door that opens, not one that closes. And we uh, and it's just a different form of existence. And people who've had near death experiences who were clinically dead, and they they do uh, they do have this this uh, feeling, this uh, sensation in common when they talk about this tunnel and feeling love and warmth and so on. And I, I, I believe that. I firmly believe that. I don't think it's a trick of the brain and so on. I think there's more to it. And I think that does exist. And I think that we are too obsessed with things, like we said at the beginning, that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, that our view is really distorted. And 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 Buddhism does a great job of focusing on it and of giving us the, the the tools basically but we have to do the constructing and we have to really adjust to also who we are our own needs and so on they can't just i don't think you can just blindly follow that it's just you know modifying it to to your own uh person and being yeah uh, i mean i i it's always an interesting you know, interplay between us because I, I don't believe in any kind of afterlife or anything like that. Um, but um, I think um, that though I don't believe in an afterlife, there is um, a sense of this sort of wider, a, a wider, it's, to say a wider self is all maybe even too grandiose, but there is that inter interbeing, you know, a sense of like a, that not not feeling separate, you know, from from existence, whatever. And Tikhnihan, you know, talks about how, you know, he lives on in his students. You know, he lives on in the work that he's done and all those kind of things. And it's like, yeah, you know, and as I get older and 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 mortality is more in my mind. I'm like, okay, you know, like I don't have kids or anything, so. That yeah, maybe but uh, I, some I, small I, ways, some some small act of kindness or something that I did. Yeah, that doesn't give the, the comfort we would get. I think more like a kind of like the, the purgatory thing that like we go through. Like, that's what I like about uh, reincarnation is like, okay, so this was my try. This was my shot as this person. It's like roles we play. And this is now I'm going to have another role. I'm going to be another person and uh, get it like, you know, try to cleanse yourself and kind of this constant cycle until you reach that moment where you say, you know what? Okay, yeah, you did it. You won the big prize. And I, I, I think that is, 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 to me, makes a bit more, um, more sense personally, but it's also more satisfaction instead of uh, being of something like, okay, yes, I will become part of the earth and so on, and my body will dissolve. And to me, I, I don't think that's true. It's not that uh, to be in denial and wishful thinking. I just don't think it's true. And based on a lot of struggle and a lot of thinking and a lot of grappling with things, the realization is, wait, I, that's not it. There is more to it. And as I discover, and, uh, you know, of course, I could be wrong, but there are certain things that happen and you go, okay, this is just bizarre. And uh, I think those are being open to, to coincidences, to, to feelings, to sensations, to, to all those things, I think is, is, is very important. Instead of like, again, closing off in that, that limited view and saying, okay, mm -hmm. wait, there is more to it. That's why also agnostic, I think, is, uh, is, is a step in the right direction. You're like, I'm not 
firmly believing this or the other, but I can be swayed either way. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that is uh, a curious mind of like, I might be wrong, right? Same here as well. But it's like when I look at the evidence, um, not just science, but also experiences, personal experience. And I think that's undervalued. I mean, science is all about, okay, well, we didn't prove it scientifically, therefore. And it's like, no, that's just one view of things, you know, and uh, there's others and, you know, quantum physics and quantum mechanics is, is opening up. You can be at two places at the same time. You can communicate. Telepathy could technically exist. Well, let's, let's be open to that. Well, there is one personal experience we all have that will let us know if that's true or not when we, when we die. But I do think we have just a bit of time, but I want to just touch on like the, you know, we talk about meditation, all of that, and Buddhism as a, you know, the enlightenment, the liberation and all of that. But I also think, you know, it's, it's you know, increasingly used for, as you mentioned at the beginning of all this, you know, for therapeutic uses, for whatever. And one of the things that I find very compelling about it is the way that that is linked to creativity. And, and I think that that was the big one for me when I kind of was like, ah, and John Kabat-Zinn, you know, who, who wrote yeah. Full Catastrophe Living and all that, he talks about that, like creativity, if you try to, the mistake that sort of that we make is we try to think our way into creativity. Like we think it's all about, you know, just knowledge and skill or whatever it is. And it's like, you really don't achieve creativity until you hit a level of consciousness and, you know, the meditation, mindfulness, all of that. So, you know, not just as a way of liberating from samsara and all of that, but as a tool for, yeah, exactly. for being as creative and fully kind of, you know, alive as we can be, I think is, is another great reason to, to get interested in all of this. And so you don't have to go to a monastery for all that, but, you know, like another good reason to set aside some time to do some meditation, all that, because it's going to lead you to those those levels of consciousness that are going to be where you are going to perceive things so differently and see things. And so I know for you, that would include sort of the supernatural, but for me, it's more like it, it's a much broader perspective that now allows me to see ideas and concepts in a new way. And, and it allows me to connect with people in a completely different way. So I really like that, that tool, the idea of tool. And I can see we can expand it to all religions and say they're tools. Now, some will resonate with you and some will not. You might say, oh, this is not for me and I'm going to choose the other tool. And But the, the aim, if you feel fully engage with it and you're not just in for your own personal profit or your ego satisfaction, if you fully engage with it with your whole heart, I think it will lead you to exact same place. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that's my, my hopeful uh, finish here of, again, being an, an optimist. And I think there's you cannot be but an optimist in, uh, when, when it comes to life. We have to be, and that is something. But it is magical. It is wonderful. And once we, we notice that, we realize that, we realize that our perception is often the suffering is really self-inflicted in many ways, even though mm -hmm. we don't realize that. And certainly our sense of being separate and isolated, right? Like, And, and certainly any all the sort of Buddhist stuff definitely has linked me to a whole community of people who are, are interested in this. So it's, it's definitely something that even though a very solitary kind of experience in meditation sort of inevitably links to, to connecting with other people in a meaningful way. 
Wonderful. And this is what we're doing. And this is what we're doing with others who are who are listening, who are watching us. Uh, um, thank you, Chris, as usual. Thank you, Arash. And uh, thank you, everyone, for, for listening, for tuning in. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing and uh, having everyone again on our show, on the Chris and Arash show.